you have a heavenly perspective. Let me ask you that again. Do you see God's perspective being lived out in your life? Are you agreeing with what God says is pleasing to Him? When we look at Revelation chapter 18, we see an outpouring of God's final wrath, and heaven responded. We see that the heavens are praising God for His righteous judgment. Because they know that through that judgment, there is going to be a righteous change that kingdom is going to be established. Take out your Bible and look with me to the third chapter of this prophecy of Nahum. Now, this third chapter doesn't speak to Israel. It is not a message of hope. It is a message of utter destruction. We're not going to be destroyed. We know the grace of God, so how is this relevant for us? Well, if you are walking, being led by the Holy Spirit, you are going to want to know more than anything else the character of God. You see, the call upon every believer is to live, to behave, to demonstrate God's character. And it is through God's righteous judgment how he responds to this world, that we can learn a great deal about his character. We can see what is important to God and when one displeases him, how he responds. God's righteous judgment should produce a godly fear and make us sensitive to the things that God would want to see in our life. Look at verse 1. It begins with this word, hoy, in Hebrew. We might translate it, woe, or alas. It is a term of change. God still is calling the people of Assyria to change. This word means, unless things change, how awful it's going to be. And God is bringing an awful time upon this world. And we see Assyria is a pattern. It is an example for us of what God will do in the last days. Remember the context. No one thought Assyria would fall. The nation was mighty from every standpoint. It was wealthy. And no one could stand up to this empire. But God, very quickly, very abruptly, without any expectation other than through the prophets, He brought Assyria to nothing. Never to have risen again. So He says, Woe, O city of bloodshed. Now, that word for bloodshed is literally in the plural. We're talking about abundant bloodshed. Why? In order to achieve their desires, their objectives. Assyria was not interested in anything connected to God. 
Now, remember the change. They had heard the truth. Remember Jonah? He went there. He spoke about God's righteous judgment. And that one generation responded, but no more. They had turned away from God. They had turned back to their fleshly objective, acquiring wealth, dominating others in order that they might live in the finer things. And if that meant that they had to shed blood, well, so be it. Woe, O city of abundant bloodshed. All of it, we could say all of her because we're talking about Nineveh, the city. All of it, and the next word, is literally the word for denial. That's so significant. They were exposed to the truth, but they rejected it. They denied the things of God. It wasn't a lack of knowledge, it was simply rebelliousness. So it says, this city, all of it, was in denial. It was full of thievery. And then the last part of verse 1, it has that same word for prey or tearing a piece. It speaks about the enemy being, the Assyrian's enemy, being destroyed, rendered powerless. Now, probably the best way for us to understand it is a victim. The victims of Assyria. And what Nahum says is this. Those victims never stop. It's just one victim after another victim after another victim. They take prey, they take spoil, they take the possessions of those that they want to dominate. And that is that character of Assyria. They want to dominate others for their own, what they see as a benefit. Verse 2. Now we have a description of how Assyria would take possession of their enemies. It says the sound of the whip, the sound of the noise of a chariot, a will. The horse runs and the chariots dance. It's poetic. It's speaking about how that Assyrian army would come into another country and how they would wage war. Verse 3, the horsemen would go up. And then we see further poetic language with a sword that is a flame and with a spear that is like lightning. And what's the outcome? Well, notice the difference. We all know the verse that says concerning Messiah that He comes that we might have life, abundant life, that is kingdom life. But notice the outcome of Assyria. They bring about, what does it say? Abundant, and this next word is a word for a dead body, a corpse. In fact, in this verse, we're going to see three different words in Hebrew that really speak to the same thing. Abundant death, bodies are on the ground. It says here, 
the horseman goes up, a flaming sword, a lightning spear, the abundance of the dead, heavy are those who are slain, and there is no end of these dead bodies strung out because Assyria came. It says they stumble over these dead bodies. Now, what's the source? What is the cause for Assyria behaving this way? Now, this same spirit, believe it or not, happened to King David. And it just shows us something that should bring a very sobering thought into our mind. We've all heard the expression, if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. See, David, one time, remember, they were victorious. God led them out, and God brought them back victoriously. And what happens? David is given the crown of that enemy king. And do you remember what he did? He weighed it. Now, what was the purpose of that? Well, you weigh something to find its value. And after David saw how prosperous war could be, what did he do? He took a census. He wanted to find out how powerful his troops were. And remember his general? He got it right. He says, do not do such a thing. If God leads us out, we'll go out. If he calls us to war, we'll fight. But everything must be subjected to God. David didn't see that. And we see how the enemy, the scripture says, Satan moved in that midst. Well, we see that same character, that unrighteous character in Assyria. They would go out, they would wage war in order that they might profit, and again, whoever was put to death, so what? They would stumble over the carcasses that they led. Verse, verse 4. What was the root cause? From the abundance of the harlot's harlotry. Now, even though it speaks of harlotry, understand prophetically, most of the time when harlotry is mentioned, it's speaking about idolatry. This is what is foundational in Assyria. They have embraced once more those pagan gods. And they do what the world wants, and that is to accumulate the things of this world. Thinking that that joy and happiness and contentment comes in the abundance of possessions. Verse 4. From the abundance of the harlot's harlotry. And then notice that next phrase, tovat chen, which means a fair or glorious appearance. Now, it's a counterfeit, but it looks good. It looks pleasing. It has a, an appearance. 
that according to the flesh is desirable. It looked like the people wanted. And that's why it's so dangerous when we walk by sight instead of by faith. And faith is related to the truth of God. Notice, through this idolatry, it says that this empire was a master of sorcery. And through their harlotry, they took possession of nations. And through their sorcery, they controlled families. Now, do you see the connection? When a family, and the family in general, is turned aside from God, the nation will be destroyed. What they taught the people was how to live in such a way in order that the nation that they lived in would grow corrupt. Assyria was a force for corruption when God's nation should be a force for purity and righteousness and holiness. And because of all of this, look at verse 5. God responds. Verses 1 through 4 describes Assyria, that capital Nineveh, how they thought, how they behaved. And God says, Behold, that word of attention. He says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And what is going to be the outcome? Shame. Now, God is a God of dichotomy. What does that mean? Two different things. And you are either going to experience glory or you are going to experience eternal shame. Nothing in between. God is going to begin that good work if you're a believer. He is going to bring it about its conclusion. And you will one day stand in His presence. And you will be glorious before Him. Praise Him. You had nothing to do with it. It is an outcome of God's comfort. His grace bringing about an eternal change. But these individuals... He says in verse 5, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, that God of power, that God of authority. And what is he going to do? It's a term of shame. He says, I will reveal. It's a word of disclosure. Some Bibles will say lift up, and that's the outcome, but it's a Revelation. I will reveal the hem, and this is the hem of the skirt. It is exposing the shame and the embarrassment of the people. He says, I will lift up your hem over your face, and I will show the nations. This is for the purpose of testimony. I will show the nations your nakedness, and the kingdoms your shame. For I will cast upon you abominations. Now, most scholars see this as the consequences of having abomination, 
of violating the standards of God. He says, I will cast upon you abominations. And pay attention to this next word. Now, there's a debate on how it should be understood. This is the fourth word that speaks about a dying carcass. It usually refers to not a human being, but an animal that is dead and has been dead and exposed to the elements for an extended period of time. It's something that is repulsive. But this same word can also relate to foolishness. It's not by chance. When we behave foolishly, what is that? When we rebel against God's truth, what are we going to become? That which is repulsive. That which is displeasing. And God is saying to Assyria, because of your abominations, that you have become foolish, I will make you vulgar, and I will set you as a spectacle. You look at the rabbinical commentators, they will take that word spectacle, what you see, and to help us understand it, they give a different word, the word for an example. What God has done is that He has destroyed Assyria, its way of living, its objectives, what they thought was right in their own eyes, God's destroyed them as a testimony to be a spectacle, to be an example to us so that we know the true God. And let me share with you, today in seminaries, in Bible colleges, there is much confusion about God. They don't teach this type of God, a holy God, a righteous God. See, they misunderstand grace. When you do a good study, especially of that Hebrew word for grace, chesed, you see that grace produces the will of God. When grace is in a person's life, the outcome is obedience to the standards and the purposes of God. That's grace, a biblical grace. But today, we see a perversion of that concept that speaks about a wrong type of liberty. That I can do what I want. No, that's not grace. True grace always brings you into obedience to the purposes of God. I love this verse from Titus. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, teaching us, this is biblical grace, not just saves us, it does that, but it teaches us to deny ungodliness, that is, rejecting, and to live soberly, that's what the right mindset, and righteously, where? In this present age. That's the biblical grace. Grace gives me liberty and freedom to submit to God. It sets me free from the bondage of sin.
But this is the exact opposite of Assyria. And therefore, God's judgment is a message. He does punish sin. He stands against that which is unrighteous. Look at verse 7. And it shall come about that all who see her see you, Assyria, they are going to flee. Now, at one time, Assyria was the desire of the nations. They wanted to know that power. They wanted to know that wealth. They wanted to know that prosperity. They liked this, this reputation that Assyria had. Never could be defeated. Always was victorious. Always defeated their opponents. Nations were desiring that. But what a change. Now, as the outcome of God's judgment, all those who looked up to Assyria, perhaps in fear, but had that desire, if only my nation could be like that nation, what a change. Now, all the nations, all who see you, Assyria, what do they do? They flee from before you. And it is said, Nineveh is devastated. That word for devastation, it means to be stripped bare. It means to be empty. To have what you had taken away in a humiliating manner. That's Assyria. And again, no one thought it would happen. No one could see how it could happen. They all believed that Assyria was going to get stronger because that's what they had experienced. One generation after enough, more wealth, more power, more victims. What did we see? Assyria said there's going to be no end to our victims. We'll conquer it all. But God said, enough. God said, you will not continue. And all of this gives us a perspective, a heavenly perspective, for understanding what's going to happen, not in the past, but what happened in the past gives us a heavenly perspective for what is coming upon this world. It says here, Nineveh has been devastated. But who will be mourn her? Meaning no one is going to be grieved. No one's going to mourn for a serious destruction. It says at the end of verse 7, From where can it be sought? Comforters for her. Now, this word, minachim, is usually a reference to hiring mourners. When someone dies in that culture many years ago, they would hire others to come and weep and to mourn publicly. And what it's saying here, when Assyria is destroyed... There's no place to find mourners for her. 
No one is sad to see Assyria being defeated. Verse 8. In speaking to this empire, he asks a question. Was she better than no Amon? This was part of Egypt, not Greece. You do a good study. Egypt. Are you better than no Amon? who sits upon the rivers, and this is the rivers of Egypt, including the Nile. See, that location, that place, it was seen as unable to be attacked. It used the water, the sea, as a defense. Waters were around her, and their rampart, that is their defense, was the sea, and it formed a wall. But God took it down. God brought devastation there. And so the prophet asks, are you better? Are you different? Let me share with you a lie of the enemy. Now, yes, other people get punished. Other people get caught. But you won't. You can get away with it. You can escape that judgment. You can escape that shame. No one will know. Those secret things that, that you do, a lie, deceit. It is a false encouragement to get you to do that which you ought not. See, Assyria thought it would be different. It could rebel against God and not be judged. Don't make that mistake. Verse 9, Assyria. Because of its power, it had allies. Other nations joined with it. Its empire was far-reaching. Notice what it says. Cush, that's Ethiopia, and Egypt were its strength. And there was no end. It has two other nations, Put and Louvre. Other nations that, that resided in northern Africa. Africa, that northern part, including Egypt, had so many resources. There was wealth. And now Assyria had taken control. Everyone thought no one could defeat Assyria. Too many allies. They had captured all these places. Assyria would continue. But God said, no. None of the false prophets saw this coming. All the other nations were fearful. But God began to raise up prophets that spoke against this empire. They were scoffed at. They were ridiculed. Assyria will not fall, God says. And His prophet said, they will. Look at verse 10. Also he, that is also Nineveh, you will go into exile. You will walk into captivity. Also your young, meaning your young children, they will be dashed to pieces. 
Now, whenever prophetically there's a reference to children, it's speaking about that next generation. And prophetically, the next generation should be a generation of hope. We know the first thing that God says every day, twice a day, we read that Shema. And we talk about our faith in God. We talk about the commandments of God that should be upon our heart. But the first practical commandment that God gives to us is to teach diligently our children. To bring them under the authority of God. To instill in them God's definition of right and wrong. But Assyria, that next generation, they are being dashed to pieces. And the implication is on the rocks. At the chief places upon the roads. And not just the children, but notice what it says. And also her noblemen. This is the word for honor or glory. These ones that had reached a pinnacle of glory in Assyria, what happened to them? God spoke. They never saw it coming. But now it says they are being cast lot, meaning they're being sold into slavery. And because they lived according to sin, notice how the scripture ends in verse 10. And also her great ones are bound in chains. Bondage. See, the lie of the enemy is this. You are free. You can do what you want. You are going to be successful. You are going to accomplish your desires. Lie. All of that leads you into bondage. It brings death and despair and discouragement and utter destruction. That's the lie of the devil. Now, you know that name devil in Greek comes from the word where we speak about that which is diabolical. That which is, is wise, but in an evil way. That's the enemy. He's smarter than you. And he will fool you, deceive you every time. Unless you base your decisions upon the word of God. This truth is your only hope. Just that simple. It says here, those glorious men, those great ones, they cast it lot for, and they went into bondage, into exile, having been bound with chains. Verse 11. And also, you who were drunk. Now remember, in the Bible, drunkenness, is an attempt to escape from reality. And also, drunkenness leaves us unprepared for what will be. And that's the message here. They were drunk, they were unprepared, they did not want to deal with reality. And because of God's judgment, it says, Tehi Nenlema, which is, she was disappeared. Hidden, never to be seen again. 
in the midst of her suffering, she did something. Also you will seek refuge from the enemy. Now, again, most of the rabbinical scholars, when they see the word enemy here in the singular, it's not speaking about other nations. They see it spiritual. The enemy speaking about Satan. They served Satan. They didn't do God's commands. They did his commands. And in that time of help, Satan, what does he do? He gets you to sin, and then he is the accuser. He is the one who encourages your destruction. That's his nature. That's his love. That's his objective. Leads you, deceive you into poor decisions. So when you are in the midst of sin and encountering the outcome of sin, he can accuse you and he will be silent for you. You can't seek help from him. But the Bible says about our God that he is a very present help when? In times of trouble. Do you see the difference? Are you going to serve and behave and have an objective that is not rooted in the commandments of God? When you don't. When you say no to the commandments of God, you don't love God. You're not walking with God. And you are going to be deceived. And you are going to one day seek help. And there's going to be silence. But when you belong to this redeeming God, when you love Him and demonstrate that love through obedience. Now again, we are not saved by obedience, but having been saved, our new nature, our desire is going to be to obey God. Why? We recognize that there is goodness. There is joy. There is happiness in the will of God. And when we look to the world and the prince of this world, all of his energy, all of his strategy, all of his deceit is to move you away from the instructions of God. It is hard for me to imagine how controversial today the commandments of God are. Now, I've shared with this group many times that biblical word for commandment, mitzvah, is derived from the same verb that speaks about unity. That word mitzvah, commandment, a different form of that same noun, sevet, speaks about a team. Speak about those that serve and work together. If you want to be unified with God, the commandments, they don't save us, but if you are with God, you walk with God through obedience to His instructions. That not be controversial. It should be foundational. Look at verse 12. And all your fortified places, they are like figs, ripe figs. If you shake, they will fall into the mouth of the devourer. Now, no one saw that. No one would have seen Assyria like a fig tree with, and this word means 
excessively ripe figs. Those who are just hanging on, ready to fall. No one saw that. No one anticipated that. I can't overemphasize it. When Assyria fell, they were at their pinnacle. They were strong. They were wealthy. They were powerful. There was no signs of weakness in the natural. But there was plenty of signs of weakness in the spiritual. And the prophet said, not just Nahum, there's others. The prophet spoke, the true prophets. Assyria will fall. Those who heard it in Israel, outside of Israel, they scoffed. Assyria will fall? This, this powerhouse of the world? This place of wealth, that nation? No. The prophets might say it, but I see no evidence to believe that. That's not faith. Look at the text. All your fortified places, they're like figs that are exceedingly ripe. You just shake a little, and they will fall into the mouth of the devourer. Behold, your people. Now, understand the context. There is going to be war. God, as we talked about last night, He is raising up the Babylonians. No one thought Babylon was going to be the next power. No one anticipated this. There was no reason to believe it except God said it. And the Assyrians, known as the lion, and their warriors were called those young, mighty lions in their prime. But when we look, when God's judgment falls, behold, your people are women in your midst. Not warriors, but women. This is how the enemy, they're women for your enemy. The gates of your land, they will be utterly open, meaning this. We don't see it in the natural. Not with human eyes, but God is saying here that Assyria is vulnerable. They have left their gates open for the enemy to attack. Now, that wasn't the reality of it in the physical. But God was going to make it a reality. And God can do that. It is not hard for God to bring about great change. In fact, we all know the verse. One day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years are like a day. What does that mean? What we, in the natural, what we see with our eyes, that we say, it'll take a thousand years. God can bring it about in a day. That's God. God can bring great change rapidly. We don't see it. We don't expect it. The only way that we can anticipate it is through prophecy. And I say so frequently, the least likely place for people to study today in the house of God, both in Christianity and in Judaism, is the prophets. We ignore the prophets. How foolish. 
God does nothing unless first he reveals it to the prophets. And God wants us to know what he's up to. And it's prophecy that gives us insight and prophecy according to Revelation 19. Prophecy gives us the ability to discern Messiah. Now you may say that sounds odd. The book of Revelation. It says it is the revelation by John, but of, of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. Why would we need a book in regard to the last days, the end times, where it's all about revealing Messiah to us. We know Him, do we? Now, we may have confessed Him. That faith may be genuine. You are redeemed by His blood, but do you really have the right understanding of His character and what He's going to do in the last days? I would suggest to you that many within the church does not. They don't really think of him coming as the Lion of Judah. They, they focus in on the Lamb. Now, he is that Lamb that was sacrificed before the foundations of the world. Lamb in the Bible is redemption. But realize, redemption, it has that payment, that's the cross. But it also has that outcome. And it's going to be not the lamb, but the lion. The lion of Judah, the true lion, not Assyria. But the true lion of Judah that's going to bring it about. He says in verse 13, The gates of your land are utterly open. You are vulnerable. And fire, fire has consumed, it's devoured. And everyone in Israel knows this next Hebrew word. You can translate it a, a bar, like a metal bar. If you, and I think almost without exception, if you go into a house in Israel and that exterior door is through a company and that company takes its name from this word. It is a word of security. You can trust they have that bolt, that bar that goes through that secures the door. Well, what this scripture is saying is this. God just sends his fire and that bar, that security is no more. Verse 14, he mocks Assyria. He says, the water for the siege when a city is attacked, when it's laid siege against they want a supply of water. So he says, the siege water, draw for yourselves. Strengthen your fortresses. Come with the plaster and tread upon the mortar. Strengthen the, the bricks. But all of that is futile. He's mocking them and telling them, you cannot physically take a stand against God. Because God's attack is not physical. It comes from an entirely different realm. Verse 15. There, fire will devour you. And the sword will cut you down. You will be devoured as 
the locusts. We all know the imagery. Locusts come and they leave nothing in their past. He mocks them again. He says, make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the locusts. He uses two different words. In fact, in the Bible, prophetically, there are four different types of locusts. But they all are destructive. It's just that one is worse than the next, and the next is worse than the next one. This is what it's saying. It doesn't matter what you do. Verse 16. What is Assyria famous for? It says, For you have multiplied your merchants as the stars of heaven. Assyria was the capital of Congress. You could go to Nineveh and find anything that you wanted. It was all there. People would come there in order to shop, to buy, to acquire the finest things were in that city of Nineveh. But in that same location, it says again, that locusts, these bad locusts, they are going to spread out, meaning spread out their wings, and they're going to fly. When the locust leaves, they leave destruction in their past. That's what's happening to Assyria. Verse 17. It uses a word for in modern Hebrew, if you want to speak about someone who is, is set apart for religious purposes, they use this word. So it's talking about how the religious people, so religious, but in idolatry. They are like locusts. And then it uses a word for the military people, the generals. They are abundant like a great grasshopper. But notice what it says. These will come and they will camp out in the hedges on a cold day. But when the sun shines, they will leave. What it's speaking about is this. These locusts, when it's cool in the morning, you don't see them. They're, they're hidden in the shrubs. But when the sun comes out, they come out, they devour everything in an instant, and then they depart. That's what's going to happen to Assyria. They don't see the danger that they're in. We're in the United States. You know, when you look at what God says about Assyria, I see a parallel. This wealth, this power, this strength. But God, like that, can bring it down. I'm not a prophet, but I see spiritual locusts coming and bringing destruction on this country. We are not going to see, and I know there's all types of people that decree things, they're false. The only one that has the authority to decree is God. You understand how demonic that is? Only God speaks, and it is. 
And these people say, I decree, even if they say, in the name of Yeshua. No one has given them authority to decree that. They're not prophets. And what the Scripture is telling us is that, that disastrous times are coming upon those who trust in wealth rather than in the promises of God. These judgment of the locusts, it will not be known their place and where they go. Verse 18. The shepherds, these are Assyrian leaders. They are asleep. The king of Assyria, he finds out that his soldiers, they're asleep. And then it talks about them dwelling, meaning those who dwell in the dust, meaning they're dead, are his noblemen. Your people have all scattered. They've gone to the mountains seeking safety. And there's no one who's able to gather them up. Verse 19. This prophecy concludes with a simple statement. See, Assyria, they have a wound. But it's not the wound that God has brought upon them, that defeat, that destruction. No, listen to what the commentators say. Their incurable wound is idolatry. It says in this last verse, but there is no healing for your disease. Now that word disease comes from a Hebrew word to be broken. They are in need of repair, but they rejected the means of the repair, the grace of God. So there is no healing for your disease. That blow, that, that striking that's going to come from God, it is severe. And all who hear your report, all those who hear what's happened to Syria, what are they going to do? They're going to clap their hands on account of you. Why? Because so many of the other nations, they had received the anger of Assyria. When the Assyrian army came in and left them with nothing. It says that it, as it ends. For whom have you not passed through your evilness? Who has it not passed through continuously? Meaning Assyria was evil and their objectives continuously. There was no desire for them to change. They were continuously in this rebelliousness. And when someone won't be brought to repentance, God is going to bring upon them His righteous judgment. And that's what Nahum leads us with. A God who is righteous, who judges evil, and who will set things in order. All of this is to bring about a change in who? Not Assyria. There's no hope for them. God all did all of this for one reason. That His people, that they might take notice and see how God behaves. 
What is his character? Assyria. This wasn't to bring their repentance. It was to bring repentance in the people of Judah. And the reason that we studied it is for that same purpose. That we might understand the true nature of God. Not a watered-down Messiah. Not a God who is casual about sin. But our God is a righteous God. And our Messiah, He comes in the order of Melchizedek, my righteous King. When we look at God's final outpouring of His wrath, the Scripture says, it's the wrath of the Lamb. I asked you as we began, do you have a heavenly perspective? Do you agree with the truth of God? If you do, you're going to see Messiah very differently. You're going to see Him as the book of Revelation reveals Him. As a lamb, as the Redeemer, but who comes as a lion. Who is going to bring God's final outpouring of His wrath for one purpose. In order that there is godly order that there is righteousness in His creation. Remember that word, nechum, comfort. God is displeased with this world. He has given us a message of the gospel, but the times, they're changing. There is coming an end for that time of grace. What does the scripture say? Matthew 24, verse 14. It is necessary that this gospel of the kingdom be proclaimed to all the nations, to a testimony to them, and after the end will come. I'm not a prophet, but I believe that time is quickly approaching. And I believe that so much of those who have confessed Messiah We don't have the heavenly perspective to understand what is important to God. God is going to be comforted in that last days through the outpouring of His wrath. Now, I'll conclude this session with this. I could go to many denominations and make that statement. God will find comfort in the pouring out of His wrath. And a lot of the denominations today, they would not receive that. This is not how they see God. Because they see God in light of their own thoughts, rather than the truth of Scripture. support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word.
at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.